0: Section 3 of Boston Blackie, Stories Around the Opium Lamp, by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Death Cell Visions The town is red hot, said K.Y. Luz. And getting hotter, added Jimmy the Joke. There's a $5,000 reward for the arrest of one or all of us. Gloomily, from Cushion's Kid. "'Boston Blackie, their chief, "'took his pill of opium in a single draw "'and blew out the smoke reflectively. "'In the Argot of Thieves, "'a red-hot town is one in which "'outraged public sentiment "'has forced an apathetic police department "'to make a real effort to stop a wave of crime. "'So the town's burning up, eh?' "'said Blackie. "'And there's a reward out for us, "'and that sack of diamonds buried down below.' Well, what did you expect? Did you think the Chamber of Commerce was going to tender us a vote of thanks for cracking a safe in the busiest block on the main stem? Did you expect the mayor to invite us to a banquet? Of course the town's hot, and going to be hotter, as the joke said. From the tone the paper's take, it looks as if it's up to the police chief to catch us or resign. That's just it, concurred Jimmy. They're currying this town for us with a fine-tooth comb. If they happen to spot this house, we all know what it means. We'll be lucky if one of the four of us fights his way out alive. And you know, Blackie, that Pinkerton watchman got a good square look at you as you left the store. It's an even money that he's identified your mug in the Bertolin Gallery. Don't you think it's time to play checkers and move fast? A week before, a sensational diamond robbery in the heart of the city, following a long series of similar crimes, had aroused the entire town, Businessmen's associations met and passed resolutions. The newspapers printed double-column editorials bemoaning the inefficiency of the police department, and the harried chief of detectives put his entire force on the case, telling the men with a curse to go out and arrest the safe-blowers or prepare to lose their wings, which in police parlance is to go back to patrolling a beat. Meanwhile, the four men responsible for the fjord lay under cover in the furnished cottage they had rented in the suburbs. Inaction under fire is the final test for courage, and although any one of Blackie's mob would have unhesitatingly fought against any kind of odds until he dropped, the strain of endlessly doing nothing was telling on overstrung nerves. "'It's hard for the deer to lie quiet in the thicket and listen to the hunters tramping the woods around about, but the wise old buck does it, and remains a deer instead of becoming venison,' said Blackie slowly. It's that way with us. Of course we're in danger here, but if we started to travel hundreds would see us every day, for not one gets a glimpse of us now. If they have identified my picture, which is possible, the alarm has been sent out all over the country. On any railroad train or street corner we're liable to be tapped on the shoulder and turned to look down a gun barrel. I figure there are nearly forty chances of a pinch if we travel now, to one while we lie quiet here. I wouldn't mind swapping lead with a couple of coppers at that," boasted Cushions. He was rather afraid that his former remark had been taken as a reflection on his nerve. A quick wit beats a quick gun nine times out of ten, son," returned Blackie in quiet censure. Remember that, and you're less likely to have a rope start you on your long jolt underground. If I ever have to go that route it will satisfy my curiosity anyway the boy bragged. I've always wondered what it was like to do time in a death cell. I've often dreamed I was in one, waiting to be topped, hanged. Maybe sometime I'll know. Blacky seized the pipe and passed it backward around the circle before another pill was smoked. It is the opium-smoker's charm against the ill-luck of foolish boasting. If you are really so curious to know what it means to a man to lie caged up in a steel tank. "'Counting the days and hours of life that he has left, I'll tell you. "'It may keep you from burning powder too soon, sometime,' "'said the gray-haired cracksman after his silence. "'He hesitated before continuing. "'It isn't a thing I ever talk about. "'I've tried for years to forget it and haven't succeeded. "'But I'll tell you the story tonight. "'It may do us all good, the way we're fixed.' I did three months in a death cell once, and had all but eaten my last meal when a reprieve came." All of Blackie's companions stared in astonishment. Closely as they had been associated with him for years, not one of them had ever heard of this new chapter in his eventful career. "'I was sentenced to death in the electric chair years ago,' continued the speaker. "'I wasn't guilty, but that's not essential now. The coppers made out a good circumstantial case against me. I was a known crook, and the jury brought in the death verdict. As I lie here now, I can feel again what I felt that day when they took me up to the old prison that I never expected to leave alive. Hurry up with a couple of pills, Jimmy. It gives me a habit whenever I recall that day and the ones that followed. They are like a brand on the brain, something that can never be effaced. It was early summer. The sun was bright and warm and beautiful. There were birds and flowers everywhere outside the car windows. Inside, handcuffed to the seat, I leaned toward the window and saw the children playing, men at work in fields, farmers on laden truck wagons, city folk in automobiles. Everywhere there was life, and I was going to death. Everything my eyes saw was for the last time I could never look again upon any of these simple everyday sights that now, since they were lost to me, for the first time seem so deeply worthwhile. I remember the executions I had read of in the papers. They had never impressed me very much, and now my thought came to me as a shock that my execution would mean as little to the outside world. They would read that I died stoically or cravenly, with a curse or a prayer on my lips, and forget me in the box score of the ball game. At the prison, all the preliminaries over, I was led across a beautifully flowered garden to the death house. I walked slowly beside the captain who had me in charge. I took a last look at the flowers and the sunshine, and then another, and still another, THAT'S RIGHT, SAID THE OLD CAPTAIN. TAKE YOUR TIME AND GET A GOOD LOOK ROUND. IT'S YOUR LAST CHANCE, SON. I SHUDDERED, AND WAS ASHAMED OF MYSELF. WAS I, WHO HAD ALWAYS PRIDED MYSELF ON MY NERVE, WEAKENING ALREADY WITH THE DAY STILL WEEKS AHEAD OF ME? THE HEAVY DOOR OF THE DEATH HOUSE OPENED. WE ENTERED, AND IT CLOSED BEHIND US, BLOTTING OUT THE SUNLIGHT. I HAD SAID MY LAST GOOD-BYE TO LIFE. I WAS GLAD IT WAS OVER for the strain was getting on my nerves. After being stripped and given new clothes, I was led down a corridor with cells on either side. Faces that seemed curiously yellow in the glare of the electric lights peered out at me from behind curtains as we passed down the tier. There were fourteen men there before me, all waiting as I was for one inevitable end. They put me in a cell with another condemned man. I threw my coat on the iron bunk and turned to look at him. His face was yellow like the others I had seen, and haggard. His eyes were bright and glowed as if there were a flame behind. When do you go away? What's your day? he asked. August 31st, I said. My day too, he cried out. We go away together. But maybe you've appealed and will get a stay. The thought seemed to hurt him. I didn't have any money and couldn't appeal. I answered. Oh, then we will go away together. My appeal was denied last week. He seemed relieved. As soon as we had told our names he commenced to tell me the news and gossip of our little world. For to men in the death cells the whole world lies within the four walls that blot out forever that other world on the outside. A wife-murderer was the next due to go away. He had refused to see the priests and threw in the chaplain's face a Bible that had been sent him. Another man, whose time also was nearly up, babbled secrets in his sleep, and was thought to be insane. It is hard for a man in here to know whether or not he is sane, said my companion, looking at me intently. Strange things happen in this place, things neither of us would ever believe on the outside. I'm glad they put you in with me. Either you will see what I see, you won't. Either way, it will help me." "'What do you see? I don't understand,' I replied, puzzled. The suspicion that he was crazy grew in my mind. "'You'll know soon enough,' he answered, and dropped the subject. The long, monotonous days dragged wearily by. We were glad each time night came, and yet begrudged the lost day. Each night left one day less of life for us. We read magazines, played checkers, tried novels, sang with the other condemned men, but no mental diversion ever removed the specter of the chair that waited at the end of the road we were all traveling so swiftly. I remember one night I was reading an absorbingly interesting book. It was Per Gorio by Balzac. I read on and on, my eyes following the printed words on the pages. My cellmate spoke to me and I came out of my dream, realizing that for many pages I had not sensed one word I read. While my eyes traveled the lines of the book, my mind had been on the chair. I was wondering whether the cold, damp cap that was to be clamped over the shaven spot on my head would send a shiver through me that would be mistaken for cowardice. I threw down my book in disgust. "'Pal,' I said to my soulmate, What's the use of lying to ourselves? Neither of us mention the chair, aloud. But both of us are thinking of it every minute we are awake, and dreaming of it when we sleep. What do you say if we quit pretending and talk about what's in our minds? It may help us to pass the time. You're on, he cried eagerly. I've wanted to suggest it, but didn't know how you would take it. After that, we spent hours debating every imaginable phase of our approaching end. We recalled every printed account of an execution we had read. We argued the relative ease of death by hanging, by a bullet, and by electricity. We even made a sort of game of it in this way. I would say, what will happen 11,520,000 times yet before we go? You see, boys, I still remember even the figures after all these years. It was my cellmate's task to guess what I referred to. In this case, the answer was our heartbeats. Each of us vied with the other in inventing and computing these conundrums. Always we selected something in which the answer was some gigantic number running into billions sometimes. It seemed to push the chair farther back into the future to have such an uncountable number of units of any kind between it and us. We used reams of paper, figuring out how far an express train traveling sixty miles an hour could carry us in the days of life we had left. We estimated how far an ocean greyhound could take us in a round-the-world trip We learned how fast the earth travels, and worked out with painstaking accuracy the exact distance it would carry us through space before the day. We read a magazine article on a comet which was said to be traveling toward us at dizzy speed, and learned how many round trips to the moon we had time still to make if we could travel with it. We made a table showing how many heartbeats and how many breaths were left us at the end of each of our rapidly dwindling number of days, and all this helped us to pass the time and keep down the ever-increasing mental tension. The wife-murderer's day came. The night before he refused to sleep, preferring the long torture of consciousness rather than to lose one of his precious minutes in insensibility. All night long we sang for him, from cell to cell—hymns, ragtime, popular airs, everything. I recited the girl with a blue velvet band, and Frankie and Johnny, but the old, old songs many of us had learned in childhood pleased best. Finally dawn came, the curtains were dropped before our cells and at last they led the doomed human creature out through the door from behind which no one ever returns. The chair was within twenty feet of one of the walls of our cell, but although we listened, dry-lipped and trembling, after the death party passed out, no sound came to relieve the strain of that frightful silence. It was on the day that the second man was electrocuted after my arrival that my cell partner broke down, After the last chorus of goodbyes had been shouted as the death party passed down the tier, the door closed behind them. That terrible, unbreakable silence that seemed the very embodiment of death itself was upon us. We could have heard a pin drop at the farthest end of the cell-house. Each of us was picturing that hidden scene so close behind us in the execution room, and each of us saw himself in the chair. At last, Someone coughed. The sound was like a blow. My partner cried out hysterically and tore at the wall with his fingernails. I picked him up in my arms and laid him on his cot, where he lay sobbing like a child. Blackie, he cried. "'I can't. I can't face going to the chair, knowing what lies beyond it for me.' "'It's hard, all right, partner,' I said. "'But what can't be helped must be borne. AND NONE OF US KNOWS WHAT DOES COME AFTER THE CHAIR. MAYBE IT'S PEACEFUL SLEEP. ANYWAY, YOU AND I WILL FIND OUT TOGETHER. WE'LL SHARE WHATEVER LIES OVER THERE. NO, NO, WE WON'T. THAT'S JUST IT, HE SOBBED, HIS VOICE RISING IN FEAR. YOU HAVEN'T BEEN hounded BY HIS FACE LIKE I HAVE. YOU HAVEN'T EVEN SEEN HIM, AND HE'S BEEN HERE MANY TIMES SINCE YOU CAME. HIS FACE WILL BE WAITING FOR ME AFTER THE CHAIR. That is what frightens me. I don't believe in God. I've tried, but I can't. But I do believe what I can see, and every night the eyes tell me plainer than words that I will have to face him when the chair has done its work." "'Crazy as a bat,' I said to myself, and tried to quiet him. But he babbled on and on about the face that came, and stared at him at night with menacing, unmoving eyes it was the face of his partner whom he killed he said my bunk lay with its head toward the corner where the face appeared he told me he asked me to move it and watch with him for this thing that terrified him so frightfully of course i knew the man was insane but i humored him blacky smoked a pill and motioned for an extra one before he spoke again the others twisted uneasily on the pallet remember what i said in commencing THE SMOKER WENT ON IN LOW TONES, I MYSELF SAW WHAT I AM GOING TO TELL. IT WAS STRANGE THERE IN THE DEATH CELL WHERE MYSTERY HANGS LIKE A FOG ALL AROUND YOU. TOLD HERE BEFORE THE FOUR OF US IN THIS EVERYDAY ROOM, IT SEEMS UNBELIEVABLE, AND YET IT IS TRUE, I KNOW, FOR I SAW. WELL THAT NIGHT WE LAY AWAKE TALKING. I kept trying to cheer up my cell partner, for he was terribly shaken, and I knew there would be a frightful scene when our day came if he didn't regain his nerve. The lights in the cell were out, but those in the corridor shone through the barred door almost as brightly. The far wall of the cell was in shadow. Everywhere else there was light enough to read by. I don't know what time it was. Not late, anyway. There had been silence between us for many minutes. Suddenly my comrade reached out and caught my hand in his, like a frightened child seeking protection from something. His fingernails sank into my flesh until they brought the blood. "'Look! Look!' he whispered from beyond teeth that clicked like castanets. "'See! He's coming!' I looked where he pointed with shaking forefinger. At first I saw nothing. Then... So gradually that the transition was scarcely perceptible, the dark stone wall before us seemed to glow luminous near the center. It was like nothing I had ever seen. It was as if the light came through the wall from behind, faint but unmistakable. I stared. Slowly, a change began near the center of the frame of light. Two spots more luminous than the rest appeared. They looked like eyes. My God, they were eyes! The outlines of the head grew visible, then the face filled in around them. Icy perspiration ran in streams from my forehead. I wanted to, but I could not turn my eyes away. At last a whole face was there, a human face, with stern, menacing eyes that looked straight at my companion, cowering beside me. The threatening eyes pierced like a knife. There was not the slightest movement, not a flicker of an eyelash. In the terrible steadiness of the gaze there was unutterable hatred, an irresistible power. And then, as I stared, it may have been minutes, it may have been hours later, I don't know, the outlines of the head blurred and faded, the light that shone through the wall dimmed and I found myself murmuring a prayer of thankfulness as I stared at the stone wall which was once again its familiar self. My companion turned toward me, a face blue-white with emotion. After many trials he managed to articulate, You saw—you saw it, Blackie. Now tell me, was I right? I nodded. I couldn't speak. Did you ever see the picture of the man I killed? I shook my head. Then write, write," he cried, write now a description of that face, as if it were a man you had met. I did as he wished, without understanding what he intended to do. As I wrote, blood splashed down on the paper. I looked at my hand. It was gashed to the bone by my partner's fingernails. I hadn't known it till then. When I finished, he rushed to the box in which he kept his letters and papers. Flinging them to the floor in his haste, he finally found a clipping from a newspaper. There was a photograph in the center of the page, and he handed it to me. It was a picture of the face I had seen on the wall. Every feature was there, absolutely unchanged and unmistakable, except the eyes. In the picture those were kindly. I have told you what they were like as they stared at us from the wall. My partner read aloud the description of the face I had written. With the picture before me I could not have improved it. I had described accurately the face of a man I had never seen, except in that damnable vision. "'You know now, Blackie, why I'm afraid to go away. It isn't the chair that terrifies me. It's what comes after,' my partner said. He was calmer now than I. "'You read the message in his eyes.' I was too stunned and paralyzed with surprise and fear to talk or even think. That I, Boston Blackie, should have seen such an impossible, miraculous sight, in a place where human trickery was obviously out of the question, staggered my reason. The barriers of unbelief were swept away by the certainty that I had seen proofs of the one unsolvable mystery I was like a little child beginning all over again, to build up new beliefs on the ruins of those convictions which until then had been certainties to me. There was not an hour of sleep for either of us men in the cell that night of horror. The following day my partner's wife came to visit him. It was next to her last visit. Our time had dwindled away now to something less than twenty days. A heavy wire screen kept her back from the cell door, but though she could not touch him, they could talk freely. She was a wonderful woman, of the same type as three-fingered Max's wife, of whom I told you once. She was a firm believer in a life somewhere beyond the grave where there was no such thing as sorrow and crime, and where those who had loved in this world met again in peace and happiness. Like a mother talking to a little child, This woman, with tears streaming down her face, sought to force the comfort of her faith on the unbelieving mind of the doomed man she loved. Each strained against the intervening steel that kept them from even so little as a handclasp. If there were ministers who could plead as that woman did, maybe there would be fewer men like us. But there never will be. A woman where our love is involved is inspired. She's more than human. She begged him in the name of their love to have faith that the chair meant only a reunion for them, a reunion where there could be no barred doors, no suffering, no sin, no death. "'We'll meet each other there, my husband,' she said. "'If only—' Mary,' he interrupted. "'If I thought the chair would bring us together again, any time, anywhere, I would long for the day to come. But I can't believe it. I can't believe you will be given to me ever again. That will be my punishment. Someone is waiting for me there, though." Then he told her for the first time about the face of the murdered man as it appeared to him. His wife's face brightened as he explained, the light of some new and wonderful resolve shone in her eyes. She pressed her face to the wire netting and whispered to him like a mother. "'Dear, dear boy,' she said, "'you have solved everything for us.' THANK GOD YOU TOLD ME IN TIME. YOU BELIEVE IN THAT FACE YOU CAN SEE. YOU SHALL HAVE MY FAITH, TOO. WHEN THE TIME COMES, YOU SHALL GO, KNOWING IT IS TO JOIN ONE WHO LOVES YOU, NOT HATES." THE GUARD CAME TO SAY THAT HER VISITING TIME WAS UP. COME CLOSER SO I CAN SEE YOUR FACE ONCE MORE, MY DEAR, DEAR ONE, SHE SAID. I want to see you smile again as you used to in that little house we both loved so. Don't fret or worry. I will save you from all your fears. God has shown me the way. Goodbye, my love, for a little while, a very little while." Bravely she kissed her hand, stretched it out toward him, and was hurried away by the insistent guard. That night the face appeared on a wall again exactly as before. The following night it came again, and so night after night we came to watch for it with a fearful fascination. The hateful eyes stared out at us as menacing as before. My partner, who had been cheered temporarily by his brave little woman's confidence, fell into a terrible state of fear and hopelessness. It was awful for me to contemplate what I feared might happen on the last morning. On the tenth day before we were due to go away, The warden personally brought a letter to my cellmate. It was very unusual. His manner, too, was strangely constrained. "'Read this letter,' he said. "'It's from your—your—your wife. I've got some news for you. I'm sorry.' My partner held it up before his eyes, but his nerveless hands let it slip to the floor. He motioned to me to read it to him. "'As I lie here now—' I can see every word of that letter as clearly as I did that morning. It was only a few lines. My darling, when you read this, I shall have solved the problem for us both. I shall have taken the one certain way to prove to you that my faith in a future somewhere together is surely true. Don't sorrow for me. I am happier as I write this than I have been since trouble came to us, before you face the last ordeal. You will know, as I know, that it ends our separation forever. I have prayed that this knowledge may come to you, and it will. I shall be waiting for you. Don't fear to come to your Mary." The man looked at the warden with terrible fear in his face. She's—she's—he couldn't speak the word. Yes, my boy, she's dead, the official answered. Happened sometime last night. An overdose of morphine, they say. Her husband dropped on his bunk in a swoon that looked like death to me. I hoped it was. It would have been easier and quicker. They sent the doctor up and finally brought him back to consciousness. It's a strange thing, that. They will do anything at all to stave off death until they can kill you in their own way. The rest of that day was one that I still have to force out of my memory. I don't intend to put those hours of agony into words. It seemed almost as much of a catastrophe to me as it did to her husband that the brave little woman who had cheered us only a few short days ago should now be gone forever. Hours passed, and night came, and neither of us knew it. The warden sent in a flask of whiskey, but it lay untouched on the floor. It must have been very late when we caught, both together, the first glimmer of light on the dark stone wall. We clung together like scared children. I'm not ashamed to tell it. Slowly it grew in the way that now was familiar to us. The cold eyes appeared, the head, the whole face. Once again we stared at the vision of the murdered man. And then, as we looked, came a transition. The unchanging eyes seemed to soften. The hatred died out. The contour of the face altered. The lines of the head melted into curves of wavy hair, and before our eyes on that wall, we saw the face of the dead woman, my partner's wife. He fell on his knees, stretching out his arms to her, her eyes kind and loving and happy, looked straight into his, giving as the others had done a message that was plainer than spoken words. The kneeling man's eyes fired with a sudden great hope, Mary. "'Mary, my wife,' he called. "'I understand. "'I believe. "'I believe. "'I'll come to you, glad and unafraid.' "'The vision faded and was gone. "'He leaped to his feet. "'Blackie!' he cried, seizing my hands and clasping my shoulders "'in the ecstasy of his newfound hope and belief. "'She's waiting for me. "'It's true, all true. "'We're going to be together again. "'I wish I could go to the chair tomorrow. "'No, now, this minute.' I can't wait. Mary has saved me. No man ever went to the chair as that fellow did. Instead of fearing and begrudging the flying hours, he checked them off eagerly, impatiently, like a boy waiting for a long expected holiday. Perfect peace and trust were in his heart. He was the one happy man I ever knew or heard of in a death cell. And when the day finally came, They told me he marched down the corridor and through the little door with a happy smile on his face and perfect love and trust in his eyes. That, boys, is what a woman's love did for that man. Cushions was very white, the others more solemn than usual as Blackie finished. Thank you, Blackie, for catching my arm when I started to draw my gun on that Pinkerton the other night, the boy said reverently. "'All I've told you tonight flashed through my mind "'in the second in which I decided to risk talk "'instead of lead,' answered the gray-haired opium-smoker. "'It has saved me several times "'in similar moments of peril. "'That's why I told you the story. "'I felt I ought to.' "'The heavy opium-smoke all but hid the far walls of the room, "'but the men smoked on. "'The pipe passed round and round the circle many times.' "'Did any priest or scientist ever try to explain what you saw, Blackie?' asked Jimmy at last, as though there had been no break in the conversation. "'No one ever had a chance. I never told anybody but you three was the answer. "'I read once, though, that some professor laid an occurrence somewhere similar to what he called hypnotic thought suggestion between two overstrained minds. That's rubbish, though. I know what I saw.' "'How did you beat the chair?' asked Jimmy, voicing the question each had been eager to ask. "'The man who really killed the Jew came through with the truth,' answered Blackie. "'He wasn't such a rat, after all. "'He was safe in Lima, Peru, and he wrote a letter confessing his guilt "'and telling that the gun he had used was hidden in a hollow oak "'just outside the house where the Jew was killed. "'Its disappearance was one of the mysteries of the case.' He gave its number and told where he bought it in a pawn shop. There was a lot of other corroborative detail in the letter, and the district attorney, after an investigation, was convinced that I was innocent. He laid the letter before the governor, who commuted me to life imprisonment. I can still feel the sunshine on my face as it felt on that morning when I left the death cell for the open prison yard. Six months later, the governor was convinced I was innocent, and he gave me a pardon. I left that prison determined to live straight. I was young then. But here I am, gray-haired, and still a thief." "'How did you come to turn back?' asked Cushions eagerly. "'That's another and a longer story, son. Sometime maybe I'll tell you. Boys, we've all had enough hop. Smother the lamp, Jimmy.' and of Death Cell Visions by Jack Boyle.